We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks so much for the introduction, Dr. Bill. That's Dr. Bill Meyer, a talented child and family psychologist, and the voice, by the way, for Ping Golf Clubs. A lot of people don't know that, but next time you hear an ad for Ping Golf Clubs, you might be hearing Dr. Bill Meyer. And thanks, too, to the Salem Media Network for distributing this program. But it is great to be with you, and I appreciate you joining us on this Thanksgiving weekend. Well, you survived Black Friday, and maybe you're gearing up for Cyber Monday. Uh, Actually, I didn't even deliberately plan it this way, but it's just perfect that our guest this week is Dr. Rick Lytle and his daughter, Kelly. Dr. Lytle is the president and the chief executive officer of the CEO Forum, which is an organization that serves and ministers to Christian leaders all across the globe. But Dr. Rick is also on the business faculty at Abilene Christian University and is the director of the Lytle Center for Leadership and Faith Development in the College of Business. Now, prior to joining the CEO Forum, Dr. Lytle served as the dean of the college. Now, he's intimately familiar with the retail world and customer service, which is why I think it's great that he's here in the wake in the wake of Black Friday. But most importantly, Dr. Rick is a family man. He is happily married to Jean and is the dad to three daughters, Kelly, who joins us today, Hannah and Michelle. Uh, Dr. Rick is also my friend. So, Dr. and Kelly, thank you for joining us. It is yes, a delight you. to be here. Just absolutely delightful. Well, you, Kelly, you came as a surprise. I'm su- super excited to have you with us. How often do you get to travel with your dad? It's been a tradition um, for probably the last 10 years. If my mom can't go, one of the three of us sub in. Um, so, yeah, maybe once every one or two years. But thank you so much for letting me jump in. Sure. And you're post-college. You're now in the working world. I am. I've been in the working world for about 10-ish years, so it's it's good to learn about faith and family and business intersection and all of that. So, yeah. Yes. Well, you have a youthful glow to you, so you could be still in school and no one would know the word. No, yeah. So I like thank to you. fake them out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Of course. Um, Dr. Rick, I mentioned Black Friday. Yeah. I spent uh, five years of my life in retail. I worked for Lord & Taylor uh, in New York. I was mm-hmm. I sold men's suits and then men's shoes. Awesome. And I loved it. I, I kind of loved the Christmas season. People yeah. would, you know, kind of just dread it. Um, but it's become such a prominent thing in mm-hmm. terms of the cultural impact. Uh, you know, people talk about it. They worry about it. Um, there's a lot of news about it. Um, what do you think that says about our culture that the retail side of things has become such a prominent subject of conversation. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is is the word amusement, because amusement is to do something where you don't think 
right? To muse is to think about something, to amuse. An amusement park we go to to kind of forget our cares of the world. And I think in some ways Black Friday has become like an entertainment venue Mm. where families get together. They'll go to bed, you know, waking up at five in the morning and all the usually the girls uh, will go out shopping or the guys might get together to go get a chainsaw that they saw on sale. Um, I think the online world is is changing that a bit. You know, Walmart just announced, you know, December 8th. They're going to I mean, uh, November 8th. They're going to they're they're start. So that was a couple of days ago. They sort of launched their Black Friday. Well, everybody keeps inching up. Um, But I for me. I I think it's a it's a creative innovative idea. I just think for me it kind of uh it kind of dilutes at least my view of why we're getting together in the holidays. And and the reason and maybe the Thanksgiving goes away and it turns into pursuit. And I'm not saying it's bad to do that, but um it's definitely a change. Yeah. You're sort of a student of customer service. Yes. Given the work you've done and the yes. studies you've done. Do you think customer service is getting better? Or worse? Uh, I think it's getting much worse. And why is that? Why is that? Because customer service is based on a value proposition that people are worthy of being served. Um, You can't give what you don't have. Um, And so the workforce, the values of your culture are a summation of the people that work for you. And as we seemingly, so much of our society is turning away from God, um, in that regard, godless in the way they view things. And so their value system is so different. It's not a service-oriented value system like Jesus. I mean, when I was working on my doctorate, I thought, man, Jesus is the best example of this. Um, John 13. I mean, he said, all authority has been given to me. And so here I'm going to take off my garments and wash your feet. So I put that in my dissertation, but my university took it out. And I said, why'd you take that out? And they said, well, you know, Lytle, don't be the religious guy. And I said, well, yeah, but you can quote anybody. I know Dr. So-and-so over here, and he's not a very nice man. But if mm-hmm. I quoted him, you'd let me put – he said, yeah. And and it's, so it's it's just kind of like that whole value system is, is, is uh, being depleted. And so you can't produce great service if you don't have a servant's heart. You yeah. can't. To serve is to take care of somebody else. To serve is to put somebody's interests above your own. Well, those are all biblical principles that Jesus taught us. Um, And if the top leaders are more interested in money than they are in people, then customer service is not a big deal to them. But if we have strong Christian leaders, value-based leaders at their top of organizations, they really do want to take care of customers. And those are the people that shine. Like we actually coming over. I was about to say that too. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and say it. Um, we were driving and there's a huge new In-N-Out like right down the street. And I was like, you know, In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A are Christian based and they've like really stepped up their customer service. Like being in the business world and the loyalty space, like you, you look at Starbucks and McDonald's and the people that are really doing it well and kind of differentiate from this mediocre lack of customer service we've had. But um, in and out and Chick-fil-A, their lines are always full. Like people will go where they're mm. feeling served. And that's kind of what we were talking about. Yeah. 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 It brings to mind, you know, the idea that as the world grows darker, the Christian message gets brighter. Christians are brighter. And I mean, that is has to be why. I mean, there are a lot of good chicken sandwiches out there, but mm-hmm. most of us love right. to go to Chick-fil-A because 
we know the people will be polite. We know it'll be a pleasant place for our right. families and for our kids. Right. So it's interesting you said that because it was Horst Schulze, one of the co-founders of the Rich Carlton, who's a strong Christian man and a friend of mine, uh, really a friend of our families. Um, he went to Truett Cathy way back, who was the founder of Chick-fil-A. And he said, Truett, and he's German in his accent. You know, he said, Truett, you know, your sandwiches aren't that great. <laughs> He was like, well, what do you mean, Horace? He said, they're not. He said, well, you win. Where you win is customer service. You take care of the customer you make. Of course, he's founder of Rich Carlton. And so they were having a big uh, seminar, and Horace was leading them and the team and how to deliver great customer service because, you know, Rich Carlton is known for that. Sure. And, and Horace has taught it his whole life. And, and Horace said to Truitt, we use the phrase, my pleasure. Never say, no problem. Don't say these other things. You teach your people to say, it's my pleasure to serve you. We are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That was his whole foundational philosophy at the Ritz. And Truett said, I love that phrase. And Horst will tell you, he's like, Truett, you cannot use that. That's what we use at the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> and Truett said, but I love it. And he goes, no, you're serving chicken sandwiches. I didn't mean it that much. And of course, Truett adopted it. And Horst is yeah. thrilled that he did. But that idea that Horst had of you are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, he learned from Europe in the finest hotels in the world. And that goes back to my other comment was, if that's your paradigm, there's respect in both sides of that. But if you don't see life that way, that you actually are a lady or a gentleman, a person of respect, character, integrity – and you're taking care of this person that's before you. It's an honor to serve. That changes the whole game. Mm. But if you don't see life that way and you're just trying to get, get, get. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's changed a lot, but we do get to shine yeah. uh, if we've got Jesus on our team. Okay. There's a lot to talk about here, and I want to go back to the beginning. Okay. This, this show is What a Life. Yeah. So we're going to talk about your lives. And uh, Dr. Rick, you have a very <clears throat> unique childhood. Um, you grew up in Michigan, mm -hmm. but tell us about your mom and dad. Yeah, thank you for letting me tell this because I made a commitment. Anybody who would ask, I would tell this story too. So my mom and dad, my dad was born in Detroit. My mother was born in Nashville, outside of Nashville, Dixon County. Um, the interesting thing in one way about them is they're both deaf. They, my mother at 12 months old had scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, lost her eardrums are broken. So in essence, she never heard a sound. My dad lost his hearing when he was about three, we think, fell down the stairs. Um, nobody's really sure, actually. Um, he had some hearing up until about 20, 25 years old, and then he lost. So, so I grew up, Coda, I, I grew up as a child of deaf adults. Um, but, but what I love about their story and why I'm passionate about business and about Jesus and about service is uh, when my dad was at the Detroit Day School for the Deaf um, in the seventh grade, Henry Ford, the original, uh, Henry Ford was a benefactor of the school, and he came to campus one day and came into my dad's class. It was all boys class. And as my dad told me the story, he said, Henry Ford looked at the boys, and my dad said, I thought he was looking right at me. And he said, if you'll graduate from Detroit Day School from the deaf, he said, you come see me in my factory and I'll give you a job. Well, what do you think the origin of Henry Ford's 
uh, affinity for people with disabilities was. Well, if you if you read his biography, his his actually his autobiography in his own words, um, he always had a heart for the underdog, always. And and even the way he shaped Ford Motor Company, the way he built and went to that five dollars a day, which was kind of double the rate that anyone else was paying, at least double, so that people could have a good life, make a good living, take care of their families, be a blessing to their neighborhoods. That was all embedded in Henry Ford's story. Um, So he had a lot of he was making money at this time and had he he helped a lot of people. He and Thomas Edison and all these folks. So dad just listened. He, my dad said, I never forgot that. Because for a deaf person, even today, as I talked to you about this morning, we're, we're trying to help deaf Uber drivers because they're working hard to try to make a living. Hmm. You know, So even today, it's hard for a deaf person to, to come around, make any you know, living that could bring you at least to where you're not living paycheck to paycheck. So dad remembered that. He graduated in 11th grade. And he said immediately, uh, he and his mom, uh, now nobody's watching us, but his mother took his ear. He would sign this and dragged him, you know, like took him down to Ford Motor Company. He applied. He was hired. As far as we know, he was the first deaf person ever to work at Ford Motor Company. So he was a journeyman. He was in the factory, an apprentice, and uh, started working for Ford Motor Company. Met my mom, got the twinkle in his eye and thought this would be a, a the great wife, you know, and really fell in love and, with my mom. He met her at the Ford Motor Company. No, no, he met her at actually an ice skating rink party from the day school. Okay. So she went to the Detroit Day School for the Deaf, and the reason she was there was her dad was in that during the Depression. The farms they couldn't. There was no work in Tennessee, so everybody came up I seventy five to Detroit to work in the auto industry, and mm-hmm. that's what popped it. That's what I called my grandfather. And so he eventually got a job at Ford, moved the family up there so he could send her to that day school. Key on the day school, uh, Spencer Tracy, who, like, this is way before my time, but yeah. I've heard my parents tell the story, had a school for the deaf in California, but it was a boarding school. My grandfather didn't want to send her to a boarding school. He wanted her to be home. So he looked for a day school, and there was one in Detroit, and there was a job in Detroit, so he brought her up there. That's wow. how they met. So he met my mother, and he started to dream. He had a vision of being a white-collar employee. So if there's younger people uh, listening to this, you might not understand that because very few people wear white collars anymore to work. But back then, suit and a tie and a white collar meant you were, you were an office person. You were salaried. You weren't hourly. And he just thought that'd just be awesome. He really wanted to do that. But he was deaf. So there was a trade school at Ford, and my dad signed up for that. And for four years, my dad went, I think it was maybe twice a week, after he did his shift at the factory. And he sat in a class with other men. Um, And he told me, though, there was no interpreter. So he said, I just saw the back of the teacher's head as he was writing on the chalkboard. And they were trying to learn drafting, geometry, angles, trigonometry, all this stuff. So he said... I just would scratch as much as I could to try to figure it out. And after class, he would go up every night to say, can, can you help me? And, of course, this man, no, he was the only deaf person in there. And this guy wasn't trained to teach. You know, so dad worked it out. But in his senior year, he flunked. He didn't graduate after four years of doing that. And he's really – he said to me that was probably the most discouraging moment of his life. But he said his mother 
took him by the ear and marched him right back down there. And he did his fourth year over, so he did it for five years, and he graduated with an 80% average. And I have his diploma on my office wall. It's one of, I'm going to get tearier. So anyway, um, so he graduated. And they put him on assignment at World Headquarters in Dearborn, Michigan, Ford Motor Company. And my favorite picture of him is he's on the design floor at Ford Motor Company in a white shirt with a tie. And he's got two of his bosses around him. And this is – and you can see the expanse of all the drafting boards in, in, in the room. And he kind of made it. But this is what fascinated me. He said, He said to me – on his first day at work, the bosses came up for that picture and patted him on the back. And they wrote on a card because they didn't know how to talk to him. Frank, we've heard your story. We'll give you two weeks. If it doesn't work out, you're going back to Tulane Die. Two weeks. Yeah. So this is after five years with no interpreter, two nights a week after work, busting himself to try to get to this dream. And then he told me, he said, two weeks later, at the end of two weeks, they came to him, patted him on the shoulder, gave him a thumbs up. And my dad worked 42 and a half years on the design floors of Ford. Uh, he was supervising 26 men. He had, So he was the lead on the team. And uh, just a, a quick aside, uh, there's always a Detroit auto show. Uh, and like religion, we went every year to the Cobo Hall Detroit auto show. But there's usually were pretty women and, and nice paint colors and fancy chrome wheels. Well, we, that's not what we did. The, my brothers and I, there were three of us, dad would get us down on the ground and we would slide under the cars. We felt so <laughs> embarrassed. He'd say, look at that oil pan. I designed that. It was a Bronco. I designed that oil pan because it had to have oil in it at mm. 60 degrees in either direction. And wow. it had to keep oil flowing through the engine. So that that was dad's story at Ford. And, and when I was... Uh, Thinking about college, dad had me come in and thought maybe engineering would be something I want to do. And his boss said, Rick, if your dad was hearing, he would be my boss. Wow. He says a great man. And so, but here's the real part of the story that I love. Because my mom and dad had faith because of their parents and because um, they believed the word of God in a very simple way, they lived their lives very differently. And I have a personal belief in business and in branding that generic is of no lasting value to anybody. It's just not. The farther you move away from generic, the more power you have to influence what really matters. And they were not generic deaf people. So because of their standing in their community, they had lots of friends. And so my dad then would go to Billy Roscoe and to, and to Walter Haynes and to Ed Drulet and say, you guys can do this too. Go down there. Go to Ford. Get a job. Go to GM. Go to Chrysler. Well, eventually, he was part of it, and they all started doing it. So I grew up mm. in my house with all these friends that really worked in the auto industry because a guy named Henry Ford created something that could create value, and people could be blessed and have a different life. So all these guys, and then some of them did some training and were actually white-collar workers. So we were a very unique family in the deaf community. But that's just and that's not even, the, to me, the best part. Because of the leadership of my grandfather, my mom's father, he said to my mom and dad, all of your deaf friends, you have such standing with all of your deaf friends. They need to know about Jesus. And so we need a deaf church. 
And at the time, I grew up in a black church. I'm white. Um, if you were in the room today, you know I'm very white. Um, so we drove 30 minutes down, and we I was raised in a black church. Um, and Pop said, we, we, need a, we need to find a deaf preacher. Let me just break in so people who are just joining us know we're talking with Dr. Rick Lytle. He is the chief executive officer of the CEO Forum. We're talking about the remarkable story about his dad, uh, about his dad's ascent at the Ford Motor Company. Henry Ford literally coming to his classroom as a young man, offering him a job. His father uh, figuring out how to make it from the uh, the blue-collar side of the business to the white-collar upper echelon floors. And um, Rick, uh, forgive me for interrupting you. I just this is such a remarkable story, and I want to make sure we level set with people who are just joining us. So you're talking now about there needs to be a church for right. people who don't have hearing. Right. So Pop said we we need to. I need to find a deaf preacher. And this is a long. This is probably sixty years ago. I I was like, I mean, as a young kid, I was like, how are you going to find a deaf preacher? Like, it's hard to find a regular good preacher. <laughs> Um, he scoured the country, found a guy named Harry Woosley from Alabama. I remember this guy. He had curly hair. I was, I was just a little boy, like five years old. And they brought him to Detroit. And but be, So the point, though, is because mom and dad had lived their lives in such a way that was so distinctive because of their faith, people were drawn to them. So they had credibility. So when dad said to somebody, go get a job at Ford, go, you know, go get a job, they would listen to him. Hence, when they would say, hey, come to church with us. You need to learn about God and learn about Jesus. Come worship with us. They would come. They'd give it a chance because of the credibility of mom and dad. And that congregation grew in back in those days to about 50 deaf people in the basement of this church building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, was, I grew up as a little boy, always sitting by myself upstairs because mom and dad were always downstairs in the deaf worship. And I remember I sat on the second pew. In the end aisle, and my feet hung over the. I mean, it was, I was like five, um, and and part of that. So my passion for what God's called me to do, I just see this beautiful intersection of faith, marketplace. Henry Ford, a businessman, steps into the classroom of deaf boys. My dad is changed. His parents, because they had faith in Jesus, breathe that into them. And they're able then to go influence people in the marketplace to come have a better life and then to say, come come to know Jesus and come to church and become Christians and followers of Christ. That's a remarkable story. I, I wish I was that – my efficacy was as, you know, as good as theirs. But one thing I wanted to mention about, about their character – and, I'm, and I haven't talked much about uh, mom. mom. Mom's got her own kind of story, but I know we're limited on time. But let me tell you about the character of my dad that's so powerful. So when they were first married, um, you know, like always, technology was developing. And so eventually my mom said uh, her parents took her up in a biplane. They did everything to try to get their hearing. So they, t- they took her up in a biplane and they'd go as high as the guy could go, and then he would just nosedive, and they thought the air pressure in, wow. uh, would maybe pop their ears. Rather dangerous yes, methods yes. here. <laughs> she said it was very fun, yeah. but it did nothing. And um, they went to faith healers, and I'm not being disrespectful to that, but in my mom's words, she was watching, and people would go up, and they'd hit him on the head, and nothing would happen. And so she teased my grandmother because her brother was hearing, and he was backstage I know you can cut this from the thing. It's not, but 
But they did their thing and prayed over and hit her in the head and everything. And they were playing a song to prove if she could hear or not. Well, her brother was out to the corner and he was mouthing what song it was. So when they asked my mom what was the song, he told her and she said it. And she said, my grandma almost passed out on the stage. She was so excited. That's terrible. And she says about it before she died, she said, I was terrible. I shouldn't have done that. Well, deaf people can have some hijinks in their life too, yeah, right? The, yeah, yeah, right. So, but, so they're looking at technology and, and there's a new deal. So the doctor comes back to him and he says to my father, uh, a good news and bad news. And, you know, my dad said, okay, tell me. And they said, well, uh, Lois, my mom's name, we can't help Lois. She, she can't get her hearing back through this technology. But they said, the good news is you can. We think if we, if we do surgery on you, you can hear some again. And he immediately looked at him and said, I won't do it. I want to stay just like Lois. Hmm. And so he gave that up for her. Wow. That's, that's the character that he had, yeah. that they had for each other. We're talking with Dr. Rick Lytle and his daughter, Kelly. Uh, Rick is the CEO of the CEO Forum. Uh, and um, when we come back, there's a lot of ground to cover. I want to talk about your time with the Forum, but then your time at at uh, college in the College of Business Administration. Uh, you're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. I'm Paul Batura. Again, thanks for joining, and uh, hang on after the break, and we'll be right back. Well, welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We have in studio today Dr. Rick Lytle. He's the CEO of the CEO Forum and his daughter, Kelly, one of three daughters. We've been talking a lot about your father. Right. Your mother, obviously, had a huge impact on you. Huge. Let's talk a little bit about her. Yeah. How would you describe her? I would describe her as fiery, feisty, <laughs> um, tough, uh, and full of love. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No. <laughs> I haven't talked about this, but... She was always there for me. She she did not work um, up until we I got to go to college, and then she cleaned urinals to send me to college to help. Um, but she was always there for me, always proud of me. Um, we would go to um, all the parent-teacher conferences, and mom would come. And, of course, w- one of the things that children of deaf adults would know, like our whole lives, like I'm always the interpreter. My my two brothers are eight and eleven years older than I am, so I pretty much was at home by myself most of my life. But everywhere we went, I I had to be the communicator. Um, I remember when President Kennedy was shot and killed. They sent us home from school. And Mom, I came home and she goes, "What? Are you, it was like noon. What, are you, what? What? And so I turned on the television. Of course, there wasn't captioning back then, but I had to try to communicate to her that the president was just shot and murdered and. I mean, I, so that was that was like my whole life. Hmm. And so we were really close because she was the inquisitive one and I was with her more because I was at work all day long. Uh, but she taught me about um, – I'll give you an example of how mom – how smart one – and I've got adoption thing in here. Um, so I guess when I was a couple of years old, three or four or whatever, um, I had a fire truck. And uh, I was playing with it and stuff. And somehow um, I got mad at my mom. Um and I went over, and I took—I guess I—I I guess it was a knife. It was, it was a knife from the kitchen, and I slit, I slit her leather chair like this. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. wow! I know when yeah. I say it, I think, oh my goodness. And she tells me this story, and she said, "But I knew who you were. You were a good boy, 
but I wanted you to know how it made me felt. So she walked over to my fire truck and took it and busted it over her knee right in front of me. And she said in her own way, she goes, never a problem again. So she was mm. tough. Yeah. And then, and then the other part of that story was my grandpa at one point, Dr. Dobson's stuff was just coming kind of into their world. And Pop only was educated like to the fourth grade in Tennessee. And he, he said he went to my mom one time and said, how did you do this? You raised three wonderful Christian boys. And like you only went through the eighth grade. How do you, how do, you do it? And she pointed to her eyes and she said, I don't hear, but I look at people. And I can look at someone and know who they are, their character, how they act, how they react when somebody says something to them. And she was right. She could she could size somebody up in about thirty seconds. So she was a great she she just raised us in a in a marvelous. Do you think fashion. you do you think you picked up on some of those habits? Absolutely, of, of a deaf person to be able Absolutely. to size up a character and size up a situation. I I think so. Um, I've also picked up the animation. A lot of people that have worked for me over the years. I'm, I'm a fairly animated guy, um, and I think just that expression uh, that that comes out as they communicated because communication is a big deal. Um, but I think, I think just like all of us as children, we watch our parents and uh, they've had a huge impact on me. Yeah. Um, you were kind of destined to teach, it seems, I mean, just given Mm -hmm. what your passions were, but you decided after you didn't want to go straight on for your PhD, you instead wanted to get some real work experience. Right. My favorite professors, and again, this is not a ding again, this is how I saw it. My favorite professors had the academic training, but they had the real life training as well. And when I felt that call, some professors at Oklahoma State said, why don't you go get a doctorate and come help us build a business school that's Christian? And we said no for five years, but then we felt the call and we went. And so, but I said, I want to work. And so we worked about seven years, both Gene and I professionally, um, and then went back and got the doctorate. Um, And then the call was to, and and the reason I did it, the reason I believe I did it was because I, I went to a small undergraduate program in Arkansas, Harding University. It's a great university. But it, I grew up in a great Christian family, but it was in Detroit. I didn't really know other professing Christians. Um, it's just a different, very, very different. When I came down south and I was on this campus with all these Christian, I mean, girls, there were all these beautiful Christian girls and guys. And, and literally, Paul, we would be up. It was the purest four years. We'd be up at two in the morning on Friday no alcohol, no drugs, no cigarettes, laughing our guts out, having fun, throwing water, and just doing clean stuff. And it was such a refreshing breath for me. Mm. Because even when I was in the ninth grade up there, people were starting to do drugs and the high schools and this, all this stuff. Is that kind of where you fell in love with the college campus? Yes. Because I saw these faculty men and women who could be doing something else, making a lot more money, but they gave their lives to make my life better. Like Henry Ford stepped into my dad's. And so that was the call. When they gave me that challenge, I was in industry. And I just told Jeannie, I said, I just I just feel like I should give back. Because it was so good for me. Yeah. And some of my best buddies are still my college roommates from that class. You and I were talking once and you were telling me the story about how theology students. Yes. Tell us, tell a little bit about that. So I, I ended up, you know, joined the AC faculty and Jeannie and I moved to Abilene, Texas with no water. And I grew up in the Great Lakes. And so we had an adjustment. But I was walking to chapel one day and Andre Reznor uh, was ABD, which means all but dissertation uh, from Princeton. He was in theology and I was ABD with my business degree. 
So we're walking to chapel. He said, Rick, I just had the most fascinating class. And I said, what? He, he was teaching a preaching class, an exegetical class. He said, I asked my preaching students what they thought about business majors. I said, and I was naive. I said, oh, tell me, you know. And he, everything, narcissistic, godless, hedonistic, material, I mean, all these pejorative terms. And my jaw kind of dropped. I said, really? That's what, that's what mm-hmm. they said about the business. He said, yeah. And I kind of quipped a little. I probably shouldn't have, but I said, no wonder we have fighting in the church because most of the elders are business people and most mm. of the preachers come from theology schools. <laughs> so, you say that as a joke, but there's probably some truth to that. I think there is. Um, and anyway, so I went back to my classroom and I didn't tell you this part. The first thing I said on one day was, hey, what do you guys think about um, Bible majors? And they were like, great. They're awesome. And they just – it was all positive for my business sense. So I came back then and I did an experiment with them was I, I was doing some branding of matrix, two-by-two two matrix of high-quality brands. And I kind of switched it and I said high-quality and holy, spiritual, the level of spirituality. And so I said instead of using Chick-fil-A and Wendy's and McDonald's and Ford today, we're going to use majors on campus. So we put up history and communication and English and Bible and business and all this kind of stuff. And to shorten the story, when they did all the work without my input, they rated the business major in the lowest quadrant of the matrix, which meant unspiritual and not relevant sort of to God. And they put the Bible – these are the business students. They put the Bible majors in the top right quadrant. Oh, I was just like – I just couldn't believe they did that. And I asked them, well, do you see what – your own major is down here. And they said, yeah, but we would be more aligned with God and more holy if we were in full-time church work. And really, Paul, that's where my career just kicked off. I said, you have got bad theology. I said, every single person on this campus and in this world is commissioned by God in whatever vocation they have to glorify him. I said, people don't even go to church anymore. I said, you're the new clergy. I said, the only view of Jesus some people might have is you in the marketplace, at your desk, how you treat your colleagues, how you run the business. And I said, you should be proud that you're a business major. God's got work to do in the marketplace. And I just went, I just went yeah. off on it. In my 27 years on campus, it just brought me back to my roots. Faith, marketplace, it's a God assignment. I see it as a divine appointment. And again, if you see it that way, you're going to work differently, you're going to lead differently, and you're going to make a kingdom impact. Yeah. I promise you. This is uh, Dr. Rick Lytle. He's the CEO of the CEO Forum. I'm Paul Petura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We're with Rick and his daughter, Kelly. Kelly, uh, you obviously grew up in this home with a professor as a father who's very much passionate about this. You decided to also pursue business. You work for Sunoco. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of an influence did those dinnertime conversations have on you uh, deciding on your profession? That is a good question because um, we'd, we'd sit down at dinner um, and talk about like the newspaper, what my dad learned, and we'd go to the grocery store and he'd be like, hey, why is this product placed on the middle shelf and not the top shelf? And do you remember how much this costs? And look at branded versus unbranded. And so um, for me, that was kind of normal. <laughs> every grocery trip was a lesson and every um, billboard we saw but I, I kind of fought it. I was like, I'm a, I'm like a variety person. So I was like, I might want to be a nurse. I might want to do this. And um, I knew I wanted to go to a Christian school because I'd heard about Harding. And I was like, you know what? 
Um, high school is weird. I want like great Christian friends and I want a degree and that's kind of my goal. Um, I got a scholarship in the business department and I was like, I'll try it. And then all this stuff like just kind of clicked and it makes me excited too. And so now that I'm over fighting it in my early teens, I really appreciate, um, the industry and kind of the difference you can make. And I do agree. Like, I think everybody, wherever they are, is a preacher in their own sense. It is their mission field. And um, those words are easy to say. It's hard to live out. But I do think um, you can be called to where you are. Do you find yeah. that your boldness gives other people in your office, you know, the old line from Lincoln, you know, or maybe it's Billy Graham, that uh, <laughs> when a strong man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. Mm. Uh, how do you navigate your faith in such a secular environment as an oil company? That's a great question. Um, hopefully in like 30 years, I'll learn how to do it perfectly. Um, I've I've been in different companies where like faith has played a role in my exit in the company. And um, currently I, you know, oil industry, there's good old boys. It's a good product. It runs a lot of our country. Um, but it, you're there to produce and to make money. And so... But I do think if you look close, there's nice people like people want to be acknowledged. They want to be talked to. And it's unique as a new person six months into this um, role. But, yeah, people want you to say hi. And the other day, like, I do think it's a God nod because it's kind of too weird not to be. But like this lady came up and she's telling me her whole life story. And I've just said hi to her in the cafeteria. So I just um, and I met a one of my really good friends from Nigeria who has a faith and we've lived similar lives, but um, I just pray that God uses me. And it's like, I don't know what this is going to look like. And I assume most people are like want to be used and they don't know what it's going to look like, but you kind of reap the benefits. <laughs> um, I've started kind of putting my Bible out on my desk, which feels really hokey, but I'm like, I'm going to try it. Um, just leave it there. Just in the corner. If someone has a question, so I'm looking yeah. for different ways. Yeah, I think yeah. it's wonderful. I think people underestimate the power of witness simply to be a good listener. Mm-hmm. To you know, we we sometimes grow up thinking we have to be this Bible thumping preacher and and witness to people with all these words. But sometimes we can witness simply by yeah. uh, being sensitive to what they may be going through. You know, Paul um, Kelly's being really modest, um, and this is going to sound braggadocious, but by God's grace, all three of our kids. Um, eventually are ending up in Bible studies at their work, um, inviting people to church, um, coming to their aid when they have a a problem, um, and really being leaders, like, like even in their medical programs. Uh, Kelly's always, um, I know right now, because she's in a very difficult situation where a lot of people are hurting, and I know she's this bright star because they've come to her and tell her that. And so I'm really I'm really proud mm. of who she is. And uh, yeah. wherever you're at, it's it's about people. Yeah. Well, Doc, go ahead. No, you have a unique perspective now as the head of the organization that ministers to the heads of these organizations. Um, I'm curious, you see common denominators in the leaders that you serve. These are people of faith who are some billion dollar companies. They obviously are sometimes quiet with their faith, sometimes more bold, depending upon the temperament God gave them and the right. environment they're in. Right. What common denominators do you see with uh, leaders today? Well, it, it won't be 
rocket science. I would say it's blocking and tackling is what I've seen. For the, for the leaders who take Jesus seriously, not just on Sunday. In fact, most of them on Sundays feel uncomfortable because of their stature and their position. This just happened again last week. Guys were laughing about it. Like you never know if they're coming for your checkbook, if they really want to be your friend or they just want to be your friend to get the money or they've got a building campaign going on at church. Um, but what I see fundamentally in a rhythm, I interviewed about 100 uh Christian CEOs of major companies, which would be somewhere between 100 million and actually 500 billion at Walmart. And I, and I got to spend an hour and a half with these men and women. Common denominator for most of them in the morning, but all of them, like 97% probably of those I talked to, they have a daily routine in the Word. No matter how busy they are, no matter where they are in the world, they're spending time with the Lord in His Word, prayer. Every day, yeah, and they're disciplined. They have to be that way. They also do the workout thing. They got to stay in shape because it's a grueling job. Um, and then they 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 literally try to make their decisions and by seeking the wisdom of God. Um, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible about a lot of business situations, but there's a ton in the Bible about a lot of business situations. They're just good through and through people, and they care about people. So another common denominator. I'll give you an example for Chick-fil-A. You know, we went, when we went through the um, COVID, we went through COVID. Uh, I'm on the phone. I'll just say with one of the leaders, you'd know his name. And, you know, how's it going? And he would say, you know, our operators are really suffering. I mean, we're, we're shutting down their shops, right? So they, there's no income for them. Mm. And Chick-fil-A's model is they have to pay rent every month to Chick-fil-A. I mean, they, for the, you know, they've got something they got to pay. And for about a year and a half, Chick-fil-A had a board meeting, and they just said, this is going to cost us billions of dollars, but we're not going to make them pay. So they, all 4,000-plus of their operators, just got a cessation on what they had to pay the company, and it cost them billions of dollars. But they said it's the right thing to do. That's the God-honoring thing to do. It's it's those kinds of decisions where you you really have your faith central to what you're doing and the, and the decisions that you're making. I'll tell you what's central to them if you're wondering about – where they spend their time, unfortunately, today, it's cultural issues. That's the number one thing. We are, they're constantly getting together, constantly coming to us. How in the world do we manage this? You know, we thought we were hired just to, like, make widgets and cars and sell great products at Nordstrom. Or, um, and that's what we were trained to do, and we love to do that, to create value for customers and take care of customers and our employees and shareholders. And today they – you know, Max Dupree said this years ago that, that someday business leaders would be stewards of civilization. Hmm. And I think that's coming to fruition because people are looking at government and going, ugh. And then they're looking at some of the church scandals and they're going, ugh. And the family's breaking down. And people are all to, together, if you will, in the workforce. Business leaders, if people are looking, what's your stance on this? They, they want a stance from the CEO of yeah. X, you know, company. And, and I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. People who are listening to the show tend to be, this is Christian radio. Right. We tend to be, hopefully, principled people. We mm-hmm. have strong convictions about things. But I get the sense sometimes that uh, we sometimes expect the world to adhere to our standards all the time. And we can be pretty hard on corporate leaders. Yep. Um, you are behind the scenes with these guys. Mm-hmm. I get the sense that we need to be careful not to beat these people up. Man, amen. 
I have seen that. I think we're, we turn on each other sometimes more quickly than anybody else. And again, I won't name the companies here. But during COVID, you know, if, if something hits the headlines, and it's usually a big branded company that people would be familiar with, they'll read the story. And it seems like that week, all the articles and all the Christian publications are about how they've sold out to their faith. They can't believe they're not supporting this organization anymore. And one of these companies, you know, we've worked with for a long time, and I started seeing the crossfire of Christian, big Christian organizations, like saying really strong statements and questioning their faith. And I remember one day, seriously, Paul, I was, I was, I, I was praying through this, like, what do, how can I make a difference? And I just prayed about it. And just one morning, in the middle of this one of these big battles, I got on my computer, and I think I typed three sentences or four sentences to these people you would know very well. And I said, good morning, so-and-so. I said, I just want you to know that I'm really sorry for what's happening in the press, and I'm more sorry that your Christian brothers and sisters are turning against you in droves, and they don't even know the facts. And, and, it's, and, they're, and they're saying things about you that I know are untrue. And I said, I just want you to know that we believe in you guys. I know your character. I know your integrity. And I don't know the whole story, but I'm for you until you prove mm-hmm. me otherwise. So we're praying for you here at the forum, you know, in Christ, Rick Lytle. Ten minutes later, I get an email back. That, like, nobody is saying that to us right now. And that really started a friendship between me and one of those folks because there was a trust there, right? And uh, whoever's listening, I just would say, can we be for each other? Can we give mercy to each other like it's been given to us? Yeah. Can we give each other the benefit of the doubt until we know all the facts? And I think going forward, this is going to be even more important because it's not going to get any easier culturally. Right. And we're going to be seeing probably more and more cultural sparring going on. I think if we can extend some grace to our brothers in the business world— that will go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, boy, Rick, this has been a great conversation. There's so much more we could talk about. Uh, I've been talking with Rick Lytle. He's the CEO of the CEO Forum. Kelly, it's been wonderful to have you with him today. Thank you. It's always fun to talk to family members and to, we, there's a lot to be said. Uh, you know, you see your father behind the scenes and um, the fact that now as an adult child, you can sit next to him and speak so proudly and so honorably of your father. That speaks, Rick, to your character, to your wife Jean's character. And uh, going forward, how best uh, can the listeners pray for the forum and uh, the ministry that you, you're doing? Well, I'm always praying for for vision, for faith, for courage and boldness, and for trust in his provision, but just to follow his voice because there's a lot of voices out there in the world. And, Paul, I don't know if on this recording or after this recording, I would – I have a quick story I'd love to end with, and maybe I don't know if you can. End. Please. I, so, what I'm saying to a lot of our leaders is we're in a Red Sea moment, and if you look in Scripture, I think Scripture is laden with Red Sea moments. You're not going to find a leader for the Lord in Scripture that's got it made. You go from Noah to Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Esther to Deborah, and take it right through to the cross. I mean, we're always in a Red Sea moment. And a lot of our leaders, you know, would will come to us like, we don't have a, you know, it's just, we're human. We just, it's the Lord. We're trying to help bring them together. 
Flesh and bones, that's all we are. Yeah, but what I what I love to when you don't know what to do, this is the story that I've told and I I it it's just has meant a lot to me. Say so when you don't know what to do, let me tell you a story about Charlton Heston and the movie Ben Hur and the producer Zimbalist, I think was his last name. So there was a famous scene in Ben Hur, which is an allegory of Christ. And of course Charlton Heston was famous for Moses, you know, everything he's Moses, but he's playing Ben Hur in this movie. And they come up to this final scene where it's a chariot race scene. And it's said that Heston went to the director's analyst and said, I don't know how to drive a chariot. Uh, and so he said, you know, you need to have a double here. And, and Zimbalist said, I, I want you. I don't want a double in this scene. This is the this is the epic scene that we've got to have you in. And he said, I, I can't do it. Well, he sent him to chariot driving school, so to speak. I don't know what it was really called for two weeks. So Heston agreed, and he went. And he and he came back after his training, came back on set, and Zimbalist was like, well, are we going to be able to do this? And he said, okay, here's Justin. Uh, Heston uh, said this. He said, all right. He said, I think I can drive the chariot, and I think I can stay in the chariot, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to win the race. And Zimbalist famously said, you stay in the chariot. I'll take care of the victory. Mm. And so I think that's a message for all of us today in today's culture. When you don't know what to do, and it seems it's a Red Sea moment in the in the water, you don't know what to do, and the army's coming down on you. Stay in the chariot for God. Stay with him. Stay connected to him. Make the next right decision and let him take care of the victory. Salvation's not coming on Air Force One. It's coming with Christ and God when he returns. So stay in the chariot. Don't quit. This is not a time to quit. We need Christians to step up and stay in the chariot and let God take care of the victory. Amen. Amen. Hold on. Hold on. Thanks for holding the reins. Thanks for doing your part. Kelly, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life.